It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. And we've also got a special guest, uh, which is my family cat, Panini, one of my two family, my family's two cats, Panini, uh, who is currently trying to get my hand, which is why I'm a little bit uh, scattershot. Hopefully he will stop doing that. (laughs) I mean, if you want him to stop trying to get your hand, you could stop uh, petting him and putting your hand near him, but I don't think you're going to do that. He's lying on the couch where we're recording. What do you want me to do? Just push him off like a monster? I mean, it did occur to me to suggest... That in order to avoid podcast noise, we could simply shoo the cats into a room and close the door. But I thought that you would revolt at the suggestion. I think that they are perfectly fine co-hosts. Minor. I I agree. Uh, I don't think uh, anyone will mind if if they contribute to the recording. In fact, at this point, I think if the cats don't make some kind of noise, people will be disappointed. Yeah, but I have no ability to control them except possibly to... Oh, he's licking himself. Possibly to... uh, He's licking me. Uh, Possibly to, you know, get him to purr, which I'm trying my best to do. Uh, I I would be surprised if our mic was able to pick him up purring, but on the other hand, he does sometimes purr very loud. I don't know. Picking him up while he's purring is easier than picking him up while he's hissing. (laughs) so moby dick (laughs) whales which are large mammals very much dissimilar to a house cat except in all the ways that i'm sure ishmael would argue they are similar to a house cat yeah uh so today our entire selection is about whales heads um, oh, now he's playing with the bookmark. Yeah, I took out the bookmark so that I could turn in my uh, illustrated copy that I love so dearly to the correct page, and now I'm beginning to think that I may have to shove Panini off the couch. <laughs> because he, over there, over there. Uh, okay, he's he's not on the couch anymore, and also is like really resenting me for having tricked him with the over there and like throwing out my bookmark like it's a toy. But I'm not actually going to let him bat at it, because if he learns to bat at my bookmark, my life will become hell. I, I feel like you have already uh, flirted with that possibility by waving the bookmark at him. Uh, for the listener's information, um, Ben's bookmark is the kind that has those little tassels at the end, so uh, that is why it is capable of functioning as a cat toy. Um, to be fair, I think anything can punch as a cat toy if a cat wants to destroy it. I think if you waved just like a flat piece of cardboard at him that didn't have tassels, he would have paid less attention. That's probably true. I just mean that cats are tiny little forces of destruction. Now that's very true. Um, this has been Higgledy Piggledy Cat Statements. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, like I said, all of our chapters today are about whales' heads. Um... Which, you know, are obviously, well, maybe not obviously, in case people don't remember whale anatomy, but they're of great relevance 
to Ishmael and to whaling because the head of the sperm whale is where all the sperm is located. Also, there are currently a sperm and a right whale head hanging on either side of the ship of the backlog. Yes. So they're uh, immediately present to Ishmael's mind. Yes, they are. Um, And in fact, that is how he begins our first chapter. Chapter 74, The Sperm Whale's Head, Contrasted View. Um, Yeah, I gotta say, the the openings and endings of chapters in this section are generally very good. This one starts with, Here now are two great whales laying their heads together. Let us join them and lay together our own. Yes. So we're going to be thinking about whales and philosophizing about whale heads. Yeah. So, um, Ishmael explains that, uh, the sperm whale and the right whale are, are the most noteworthy of whales because they are the only two that humans, uh, typically hunt. Um, and, uh, so now he's going to study their heads and, uh, contrast them. Yep. And also he explains that they are the two extremes of whaledom, that uh, to the Nantucketer they present the two extremes of all the known varieties of the whale. So I don't actually think that he means by that that they are actually extremes, but rather that those are the only two whales that exist to the Nantucketer. That, like, any other whales are irrelevant. Hmm. Maybe. Maybe. I just, uh, you know, I'm sure he doesn't claim that Nantucketers don't know other whales, just that they don't hunt them. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I just don't... Nowhere in these two chapters contrasting the whale heads does he talk about the two of them as extremes of a scale, I think. Mm, that's that's fair. I would I would generally feel that they are at least, you know, one of them being the sperm whale is a toothed whale and the other being a right whale is a baleen whale. And those qualities get a significant amount of uh, emphasis. That's true. That's true. I guess it's just that because Ishmael's previously stated whale classification is entirely based on size. Mm, and I, these are both folio whales, as he mentions at the beginning of the chapter. Exactly. Like, I think the idea that these represent the two extremes of whale is to say... Uh, that the range of whales that is relevant to the Nantucketer is actually a pretty small subsection of the totality of whales that actually exist. Yeah, I, you know, I think that's a fair uh, interpretation. Also, uh, Panini has just left, clearly bored with the amount of petting he was not getting. So <laughs> we are down to two podcast hosts, hosts but we will forge on ahead. Yes. Uh, I don't think he was going to contribute all that much to our uh, interpretation of Moby Dick. How could you say that? Your cats are wonderful creatures, but they are not intellectuals. Yeah, they're also not literate. <laughs> yes, that would, that would, uh, they also can't speak. That's a bit of an <laughs> obstacle to podcasting. Um, I don't know. Um, I personally would listen to a podcast that just had a cat purring in the background the entire time. That would be charming. I mean, that's fair. That is very fair. Anyways, uh. Sorry, we're we're about to get into into we're going to get into the heads of these whales. Uh-huh. So, um, so uh, according to Ishmael, the most immediate immediately evident contrast between the sperm and right whales' heads uh, is that the sperm whales is more symmetrical and has more character and dignity, pervading dignity, no yes. less. Um. Uh, yeah. No, he's um. He insists that the uh, the sperm whale just has more sort of noble bearing and uh, austere magnificence, while not so much the right whale. Yeah. Uh, and he goes on from there to talk about what they are most similar in, uh, which is their eyes and ears. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. Both of which are small into the sides. Yes. Yeah, their eyes are uh, like far back on their heads um, on either side. It, it may be useful to you, dear listeners, to look up some anatomical diagrams of whales while we talk about this because uh, I don't, I'm not going to attempt to like intimately describe the geometry of the inside of a whale's head. Yeah, Ishmael does though. That is actually one of the joys of these chapters is that Ishmael is elaborately explaining the like inclined planes and wedges and uh, shapes of the whale's head and skull, which are very differently shaped. Um, yeah, it's basically that I'm saying, like, on the one hand, if you want to simply understand the actual anatomy of whales' heads, go look up a picture on the internet because you live in the 21st century and you can do that. <laughs> if you want to read a verbal description that is, like, fairly accurate, but that, you know, is difficult to understand because reading a verbal description of a three-dimensional object can be confusing, then I don't you know. can... I'm pretty good at rotating cubes in my mind. Well, then you can go read Moby Dick. <laughs> <laughs> I do generally recommend going and reading Moby Dick, so I'm I'm trying not to make this prospect sound awful. Yes, um, I'm trying to I'm trying to sell the experience of visualizing whale heads and rotating them in your mind, and then sort of mentally being splattered with gore and weird fluids. God, <laughs> because these are very severed whale heads at this point in time. That is true. Uh, so. Um... So, something that uh, Ishmael takes a lot of note of is the fact that, um, you know, whales' eyes are located on opposite sides of their heads, meaning they must have, like, a significant blind spot in the front as well as in the back, um, and that they, he, he assumes, must see two totally distinct images on either side. Um, like, they don't have, I guess, binoc- Overlapping fields of vision, yeah. Yeah, binocular vision? Yeah. That's the yeah, term yeah. for when... So, he's he is, like, correct about how that has to work. However, he seems to believe that no other animals have this feature. Look, Ishmael doesn't believe in cows. Like, he literally, okay, when he's talking about the size of the eye, he's saying, like, that it seems, you know, disproportionately small compared to the hugeness of the whale's head, uh, and that you might imagine that it's a colt's eye. So he mentions Mm -hmm. the idea... Of a, of a horse here. <laughs> so we know Ishmael knows that horses exist. Exactly. We're slowly assembling our understanding of his world. And it's like, Ishmael, do you not realize that horses also have this kind of visual arrangement? Like, To be fair to him, part of his point is that there are, quote, many cubic feet of solid head between the eyes. Um, so there's a... Also, the phrase cubic feet of solid head is amazing to me. Um... <laughs> So part of his point is that these are small eyes and a giant head. And, like, with a horse, there is some degree of overlap in the front. It's not full binocular vision, but a horse can see things directly in front of it. A whale, because of the geometry of having a little eyeball and a slab of meat, yes, uh, do have a blind, a genuine blind spot, rather, or and a quite large one directly ahead of them. Uh do we want to mention the, like, modern understanding of how whales don't run into things? Uh, I mean, so I don't know a ton about this, although I, I have one, there's one thing I know. Uh, but we may as well, yes, let's talk about modern whale science in this episode. D- to the extent that we know it. We, dear listener, are not experts in modern whale science. And, you know, there's still a lot that is unknown about whales. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Oh, so the basic thing is that they echolocate. Like, whales use sonar the way a lot of uh, cetaceans do. And the result is that whales can, in fact, see, you know, they they can have a, a location sense of things in front of them without being able to see it visually with light. And that's a uh, pretty big difference in how Ishmael understands a whale's sort of sensorium. Because he does not have a concept of sonar, of echolocation, of sight through sound. I guess, so that's interesting. Like, when I think about the concept of echolocation, um, the first animal that comes to my mind is bats. Yes. Did people know in the 19th century how bats located? I guess not. I... I don't think so. I don't... I'm going to look it up. Yeah, that's worth that's worth Googling. In the meantime, um, while my co-host is pursuing uh, that... Um, oh my god. So I just Googled echolocation. I'm going to try to look up, you know, the history of the study of echolocation. But Google's, like, top recommended result after the dictionary definition is the Wikipedia article for human, human echolocation. echolocation. <laughs> yeah, no, this is super cool. People try to train themselves to echolocate, to develop the ability to use sounds to, uh, you know, uh, to hear through its echoes these their surroundings, to, I mean, some people claim to have a significant amount of success. I'm skeptical because we don't have particularly directional ears, but, you know, I also believe greatly in human potential, so if someone comes up to me and says that uh, they can echolocate... I'm going to be skeptical, but I'm not going to rule it out. Uh, So, yeah, the term echolocation uh, was coined, uh, it looks like, in 1938. Yes. So, yeah, this is is an... Also, I got to say, Donald Griffin is an amazing name for a zoologist. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, the the entire concept of echolocation is uh, not present in this time period. Which makes sense because, I mean, you need sort of audio... Uh, recording equipment i think to demonstrate it probably yeah i there are probably way if you know echolocation exists there are probably ways you can prove that it exists using bats and experiments without audio recording equipment but it's much more likely that you will discover it by hearing ultrasonic noises on audio recording equipment yeah anyway so yeah echolocation ishmael does not know about that at all um Incidentally, it's also, echolocation is also of interest to this discussion because I believe, so I don't think we are are 100% certain on every possible function of the, um, the spermaceti organ and the melon. Mm, Uh, Yeah, yeah. But those being the organs in the whale's head that are full of sperm. Well, Uh, one of them is, the other one's the melon. Well, I think the melon is also full of sperm. It's just that it has this, like, honeycomb structure. It's, oh. it's not just, like, a pure, like, liquid, I think. Uh, you know what? Let's let's get continue through. Um... Anyway, the point being, these are the <laughs> organs in the head of a sperm whale that are, are full of these, like, oils. And uh, I, I Of think... unknown purpose to modern science, though we think well, it no, mu- So I think we know that they are used for echolocation. Okay. Um, it's just that they might also have other purposes and we don't know for sure about those. Okay. Um, not reproductive. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> even, even Ishmael yeah, knows Yeah, even that. Ishmael knows that. I know, I know. Um, anyhow, so, uh, yeah, um, proceeding with this idea that whales have two totally distinct visual fields. 
and that their, you know, ears, which don't get much comment, are also small and sort of hidden right by the eyes. Yes, although that's not quite directly relevant to the thing I was... No, but I, I just meant that he doesn't... He's not saying they're... They can listen, even, like, the concept, not without without echolocation, even the idea of, like, oh, well, they're, you know, their sense of hearing supplants it. No, they're... They're yeah. not presented as having much in the way of a sensorium. Well, so yeah, he's, he is not... Yes, but that's not the... The thing I was about to talk about oh, sorry. was this thing about them having the ability to pay attention to two things at oh, the same yeah, time. Yeah. And he doesn't really connect the ears to that at all. Yeah, see, I, I took it that he was uh, saying they don't have the ability to uh, pay attention to two things at once. Okay, so let's actually go into what he says. Yes. Um, he's, he's Very higgledy-piggledy are the whale statements today. Okay, so he's he's talking, his, his way of kind of building up to this idea, he talks about how, you know, uh, a person, um, uh, that, that sight is, you know, as long as your eyes are open, sight is involuntary, um, but you can't visually pay attention to two objects at the same time, which is a little bit of a claim. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying it's not difficult to visually pay attention to two objects at the same time, but you can only focus on one, though. Yeah, I like mean, that's he's he's a, he's a he's synonymizing visual focus, like literal focal length, lens focus, and uh, sort of mental focus. Yeah, and you know, on some level, uh, that's completely overlooking the fact that in you know, if you're being chased by I don't know other whales, or if if you're trying to avoid danger. Having a general sense of motion is basically enough. Peripheral vision does matter, but Ishmael, being Ishmael, is all about focusing intently on one thing and thinking about it and explaining it and understanding it, rather than paying attention to his surroundings and not falling off the mast. Yes. Um, and, I mean, uh, I'm just going to read the sentence so you can hear how much he really sounds like he's talking about kind of mental attention more than, like, focus of visual field mm -hmm. nevertheless anyone's experience will teach him that though he can take in an undiscriminating sweep of things at one glance it is quite impossible for him attentively and completely to examine any two things however large or however small at one and the same instant of time never mind if they lie side by side and touch each other um which you know uh like i said i think that's kind of a claim like i think you i think it is possible to look at for example, this cup and this coaster that are sitting on I was on looking it. at the exact same objects. I just yeah. want to point that out. <laughs> well, there's a coffee table in front of us and yeah, there's two yeah, objects on yeah. it. Anyway, I think it's perfectly possible for a human being to look at two physical objects that are located next to each other and pay attention to both of them at the same time. It is, but I will say, in Ishmael's defense, you can't really like look closely, memorize the appearance, and cogitate upon both of them simultaneously. At least, yeah. not easily. That's fair. Uh... And, and, you know, in fairness, the contrast that he is actually drawing here is to the situation that the whale is in where uh, it's not looking at two objects that are next to each other. It's looking at two scenes that are physically opposed, right, on yes. either side. Um, and uh, so... Uh, that seems hard to him. Like, yes. Uh, he, he describes, he compares it to... Um, as if a man were able simultaneously to go through the demonstrations of two distinct problems in Euclid. So, like, doing two mathematical proofs, proofs up on a whiteboard at the same time. Yeah, so, so the way that I interpreted this paragraph was that he's basically describing how extraordinary this feat of visual perception would have to be. Uh, yes. And then kind of, 
I guess leaving the conclusions up to you, where he's kind of like, well, this is what the whale's visual system obviously implies. See, Can uh, they do it? I want to point out that, um, you know, he suggests, but, but is his brain the whale's? So much more comprehensive, combining, and subtle than man's that he can't at the same moment of time attentively examine two distinct prospects, one on one side of him and the other in an exactly opposite distinction? If he can, then it is as marvelous a thing in him, etc., the proofs. But I'll point out the next paragraph starts, okay, yeah. this is all- says... It may be but an idle whim, but it has always seemed to me that the extraordinary vacillations of movement displayed by some whales when beset by three or four boats, the timidity and liability to queer frights so common to such whales, I think that all this indirectly proceeds from the helpless perplexity of volition in which their divided and diametrically opposite powers of vision must involve them. I think he is saying that they can't really, you know, have two trains of thought and two real focuses at the same time. That, in fact, this is a weakness of the whales. That because they are seeing two different uh, spheres but are only able to concentrate on one at a time, they vacillate. They make bad decisions. They are, despite their immense power, vulnerable. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. That does make sense. Um, Yeah. Uh... Yeah, no, I I think you're right, actually, considering that paragraph. I think he is implying that, that whales do not have the mental capacity to comprehend both of their eyes at the yes. same time. And it's interesting, because normally he's all about the immense powers of the whale, and he's not going to argue that whales are not intelligent. He's merely going to argue that the specific, uh, that they don't have sufficient and subtle intelligence as to be able to uh, instantly fully um, integrate those two visions. Although I will point out, this only applies to whales who do panic and freak out while being pursued. Some whales, such as, say, the white whale, Mm -hmm. don't do that, and in fact act very consistently and intelligently during the chase. Yeah. So you might say that uh, there are certain, you know, geniuses uh, who have within their um, blubbery crown an imperial brain. (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, and then he does go into the ears, uh, yep, yep. As, as Ben was alluding to earlier. Um, and they're just not very important to him. He's just like, eh, they exist. They're small. Yeah, yeah. Um, he does note a, a slight anatomical difference, which is that um, the... So both in both sperm and right whale's cases, there is no, like, external ear. You know, there's no, like, shape outside of the body. Um uh, but, uh, sperm whales at least do have, like, a visible external hole, uh, whereas right whales' ears are totally covered with a membrane, uh, so mm-hmm. you can't even see them. Uh. Yep. He then sort of idly remarks that, uh, you know, it's sort of fascinating that an animal so large has such a small eye and ear with which to sense the world, um, and sort of then argues that, uh, you know, but if his eyes were broad as the lens of Herschel's great telescope, and his ears capacious as the porches of cathedrals, would that make him any longer of sight or sharper of hearing? Not at all. And, no, that totally would, Ishmael. Like, well, he's okay, just... you left off what I think is the best part of this paragraph. Why, then, do you try to enlarge your mind? Subtilize it. Yes, he's saying make your mind more subtle and convoluted and not try and not enlarge, and that will lead to greater effect. But he's just wrong. Having a big telescope does mean you have better vision because you have a greater focal depth. You have a bigger eye. 
It's a, it's a thing. It works like that, Ishmael. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the fact that he doesn't know about... Okay, now, okay. That's true about eyes. However, we know that whales have very sensitive hearing. Yes. Uh, so yeah, it's not it is... true about ears. Yes. I mean, I suspect that, you know, if you wanted to pick up very slight sounds, uh, having a large collector would in fact be, you know, it's like a parabolic dish. You The um, the sound or signal of any kind that in waves is concentrated at the center of the dish and therefore is able to pick up uh, lighter sounds. Whereas... Well, I mean, I think that's true for land animals. Like, that's why rabbits and bats have huge ears. Yeah. But, well, uh, there's also other reasons. But but I think that I think that probably the reason that cetaceans don't have external ears, even though they rely on hearing, is that, like, that's not how sound works in water I in mean, the same I, way. I don't think it... So I'm going to disagree with you here, because what I think is actually the case is that they're making a really loud noise and listening for the echoes. They're not listening for small sounds. Mm. They're listening for a complex tapestry of sound, but it's all relatively loud because they're clicking at it or whatever whales do to make sonar. I think it's clicking. Yeah, sperm whales click. Yeah. Uh, this has come up for me several times because... Uh, as uh, avid listeners will recall, I sometimes use whale song as an interstitial sound in this podcast, uh, which is me cheating a little bit because uh, those are sounds that, like, I think blue whales Mostly make. Mostly blue whales, if I remember um, correctly. Uh, sperm whales do make noises, but they're these unpleasant clicks that I don't think would make good podcast audio. Yeah, clicking and, like, weird sort of howling? Maybe I'm misremembering it. I want to believe sperm whales howl, but I don't think... Maybe they all don't. The, all the sperm whale sounds I have been able to find on the internet are clicks. Okay. Um, it is totally possible that they howl, and I just haven't been able to find recordings of it. But Yeah. Anyways, sperm whales make unpleasant noises. <laughs> uh, also, uh, Herschel's Great Telescope is a reference to um, Sir Frederick William Herschel, the British astronomer who discovered Uranus. Yeah. Uh, which is also... I believe if I'm, I believe Uranus was before Neptune, and it's important because it's the fir- if it is, it's the first planet to be discovered based on having modeled the solar system and argued there should be a planet here based on the movements of the planets further in, and then pointing a big telescope at a specific spot where that planet should be and finding it. Yeah, I believe that is uh, correct. Just yeah, looking. Uh... Uh, well, it sounds like Herschel's discovery of, of Uranus was based on, uh, detailed telescope observation, not on gravitational mm. gravity well, prediction. Although maybe that's why he knew to look in that specific Yeah, if spot. I remember correctly, Uranus was the first, I believe, because Uranus is the first planet to be discovered since antiquity, because it's the first, it's the nearest and larger, it's the largest nearest planet, thus the most visible since uh, that is not visible with the naked eye. And so obviously the uh, plants of antiquity, which are the ones that show up in things like alchemy and uh, the name... And like historical astrology. Exactly. Are all, um, you know, the the classical planets. Uh, But the discovery of Uranus, if I remember correctly, was driven by first uh, the more advanced um, models of the movements of the known planets uh, based on Kepler, based on uh, various things like that. That's really not what I'm seeing here on this Wikipedia page. Huh. Um, like, it really sounds yeah, from this Yeah, maybe like that was, was Neptune. It really sounds from this like Herschel just uh, observed Uranus in the sky, and because he had access to better telescopes, 
than like it had it had been seen uranus is visible to the naked eye so like it had been observed in antiquity just not understood to be a planet because oh okay then i must be thinking of neptune uh my bad yeah um yeah there is uh, a lot more about this stuff in um uh, a very nice book that obviously i'm not representing very well because i misremembered which planet in specific but uh the hunt for vulcan uh, or the search for vulcan i can't remember by uh, thomas levinson oh your uncle Yes, but <laughs> you can't just recommend your uncle's <laughs> book and not say that's my uncle. I'm not saying yes, it's a okay, bad book. Yes, okay, yes, that is my uncle. But it's it's just a, it's a small book of um, history of science covering a really interesting little uh, number of details. Um, it the subtitle is How Albert Einstein Destroyed a Planet and Deciphered the Universe. I wish it just ended with How Albert Einstein Destroyed a Planet. <laughs> I think that would have been a much better title. And uh, if Tom, if you ever listen to this, uh, I stand by that position. Yeah, it is the hunt for Vulcan. Yes. Um. Uh, in any case, so her, so in that case, Herschel's telescope just straightforwardly does have better vision and perspicacity, and a larger eye is literally more effective. So, uh, Ishmael. Ishmael doesn't believe in science. We know this about <laughs> him. But his um. But yes. Uh, why then do you try to enlarge your mind? Subtilize it is, in fact, a really good line. Uh, so, uh, now he's talking about, like, the inside of the sperm whale's mouth, inside its jaw. Um, I guess the only real anatomical detail that stands out here to me is that apparently it's all covered with, like, a thin white membrane. Yep. Glistening. It's explicitly glistening. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I do also like that his, um... You know, description of how, like, if the whale were held upright, so its mouth, so it's just, like, its nose is pointing up, you could descend into it with a lantern. Yes. I think that's very cool. It's very, there's actually an image later in the book of of Jonah um, that uh, depicts, um, like, Jonah walking out of a whale's mouth, like like a sperm whale's mouth, like a lowered jaw bridge. Oh, wow. Um... And that's immediately what that made me think of. When you say an image later, you mean like I mean a one of the wood, or? No, I mean one of oh, the Oh, you mean cuts. one of the woodcuts in our book. Okay, yeah. Um, cool. It's, uh... Yeah, I just didn't fun. want... I didn't want people to, uh... I wanted to be clear we were talking about a literal image. Yeah. Um, so, uh... And now he talks about, um... A little bit about the sperm whale's teeth. Lots of teeth in there. It's a toothed whale. Yep, yep. Um, uh... More teeth than you'd expect out of a whale if you were not aware that there were toothed whales. But yeah. uh Yeah, and um he also makes this claim that I really have no idea where he gets it from, that sometimes whales float deep in the ocean with their jaws like hanging completely open, perpendicularly. Um yep. and... which he compares as being like a ship's jib boom, uh which I just find like a, a just a really charming metaphor. Yeah, but I uh how does he know that? I mean, what fathoms aren't like... Fathom is like what? Uh, the length of an arm or so? A fathom isn't that long. So you could go... Like, if it's a number of fathoms down, you could just see that whale from yeah. a boat. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. So, like, he's talking about, I think, literally having seen what looked like a dead whale with its jaw lolling open just down below the water, which is just an amazing image. Like... Yeah. 
there there's something to me about the idea of sailing or otherwise boating over something that's floating deep enough down that you can't like touch it mm. but is still like present and very visible in the clear water that just it gets across the immensity of the sea or the immensity of just you know the space under you when you go out on the water yeah yeah for sure there's some i mean this is super dorky but there's some video games that use this imagery to great effect a hyper light drifter has some sequences where you're on the surface of a lake and uh going down into the water is this giant sort of titan's body nice it's very cool but yeah that um so that sense of like here is leviathan just sort of hanging there suspended below you is majestic as an image and he immediately undercuts it by saying oh yeah this is just a um this is just a hypochondriac whale a whale who's kind of depressed who's just sort of like doesn't want to bother and is just hanging out there and the other whales are all going to come and fuss medically on him <laughs> yes um and uh uh finally uh, he tells us a little bit about how the whale's jaw is like processed uh which is to say uh when the whale's head is uh, when the whale's head is being processed, they remove the jaw and bring it on deck to get the teeth out. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, specifically, Queequeg, Dagu, and Teshtigo do this. They do a lot of the stuff on this boat. Like, anything that's involved in, like, hammering away at whales, those three are basically taking point. Yeah, yeah, it does seem, that does seem to be true. Um uh, they are described as being all accomplished dentists are set to drawing teeth. Yes. Uh, so, you know, talks about how to correctly pull them out. I think the thing that most struck me was that the um, jaw is lashed down to ring bolts. So it's like tied down to the deck really hard to metal rings that are studded into the deck. And then a tackle being rigged from aloft. They drag out these teeth as Michigan oxen drag stumps of old oaks out of wild woodlands. So it's like... It is literally got a tackle hanging up in the masts that is putting as much force as possible in order to yank the teeth out of the jaw. It's ugh, it's an unpleasant image, but it's a really impressive one. Yeah. So uh, there's that- also mentioned that uh, these ivory teeth and the uh, white whalebone of the jaw are used for a variety of things, such as uh, canes, umbrella stalks, and handles to riding whips. Yes. So that's uh, the sperm whale's head. Um, and some of its uses. Yes. Uh, and now on to chapter 75, the mm. right whale's head. We should mention that that version of the sperm whale's head is really only its exterior. We're going to get into its like, interior later. Yes, there's more. There, there is more information about sperm whale heads coming up. More uh, than anyone ever needed except whalers. But, yes. you know. Uh, but but this, is, this is simply the contrasted view. <laughs> um... So, the right whale, uh, it has a different shape from the sperm whale's head, which, uh, this is one of those places where I'm like, all right, just go look at pictures of these things, because you can see <laughs> what they're shaped like. Uh, well, the... don't you think a sperm whale's head may be compared to a Roman war chariot, but, uh, the right whale's head is more like a giant galliot-toed shoe, whatever the <laughs> hell that is? Uh, that means square-toed. Ah, so... Exactly the opposite of what I was thinking, because I thought it must be more pointy, because uh, I was thinking of, like, a clog. Yeah, no, I think he's, yeah, he, the, the the shape comparisons he's making here is that, like, the sperm whale's head has this kind of, like, round, bulging shape uh, that mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, that is roughly, like, what a chariot is shaped like. 
uh, whereas the right whale has this big sort of broad square shape. Like, like a, he is talking about like a clog, but like a square wooden clog. Yeah. I'll be honest. I always feel like sperm whale heads are shaped kind of like subway, like car fronts, like the front. Yeah. Sure. Sorry, wait, sp- sperm whale heads? Yeah. Yeah, like, like, they are square-ish. They have, like, a pretty, like, a pretty uh, rectangular mm. profile, but it's rounded at the corners. Okay, yeah, sure. Mm. I guess I see what you're getting at. And, y- you know what? A sperm whale is shaped like a sperm whale. I don't <laughs> think it's shaped like anything else. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. As we saw in those attempts to illustrate them. <laughs> <laughs> um... So, uh, and he also, he makes other comparisons as to what the shape of a right whale's head suggests, uh, because for one thing, because it has these two spout holes that he describes as being F-shaped, uh, he compares it to a, an enormous bass viol. So, you know, like a, like a double bass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with its, uh, with its apertures, it's, um, what are those called? Uh, on, like, uh, the, the, like the holes in a sounding board on a, on a violin or a viol. Uh, I don't know. Do you want me to Google it? No, I, I don't think it matters that much. Okay. <laughs> I just thought you might know. No, um, sorry. But yeah, and he's talking about also how all these different parts of the right whale's head suggest different, like, general aspects. Yes. So if you only view them individually, you'd get a completely weird idea of what the right whale looks like. Um, much like that classic fable about an elephant. Yes. Yeah, he also uh, talks about... Um, this sort of like encrusted growth that right whales have on top of their heads, uh, which they they have like a number of these things, but there's one that's I guess kind of largest and most central that he's talking about, mm-hmm. um, which which the Greenlanders call the crown and the Southern fishers the bonnet of the right whale. Um, uh, yep, and which has like crabs and things living on it. Yeah, it's like this sort of weird like craggy green. Thing, stuff on top of a whale's head yep um, it's uh it's um something that he says well if you've heard it called the crown which is a technical term for it you might think that this is a uh a king a, a you know a monarch of the sea and this is his you know diadem but uh, actually that's just like a technical term it's it's obvious he's implying the sperm whale's the real king here <laughs> yes um uh, he also notes that he is a very sulky fellow uh, to grace a diadem. Look at that hanging lower lip. What a huge sulk and pout is there. A sulk and pout, by carpenter's measurement, about 20 feet long and 5 feet deep. A sulk and pout that will yield you some 500 gallons of oil and more. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what he's basically saying, like, physically, is that the, the right whale's, you know, lower jaw and lip kind of protrudes and hangs yeah. down but yes and has a bunch of blubber in it yeah but but the idea that this means that it's pouty is very funny yeah no i i get that um i too would be pouty if my head had been chopped off just to hang opposite a sperm whale head to keep the ship balanced yes for other reasons yeah and you know he... i'd probably be pouty about any kind of uh decapitation i just <laughs> want to put that forward i think that's fair of you uh, and then he talks about, I'm pretty sure in this case he's referring specifically to this sperm whale. Mm, uh, that yeah. it has like a divot in the middle of its lip. Um, yeah, and he talks about like its specific, possi- specific possibilities of its like childhood. So I think that is meant to be just this whale. Yeah, well, uh, what he means by that, I think, at least according to a, a, a note on powermobydick.com, he says, 
Probably the mother during an important interval was sailing down the Peruvian coast when earthquakes caused the beach to gape. I think he means that while the whale's mother was pregnant with yeah, it, yeah. Uh, she f- swam over somewhere where like, where there was like a, a chasm happening and that created a chasm in the... Uh, oh, the, the I think that's like, like that's a medieval theory. Yes. That, like things that happen during pregnancy have sort of allegorical effects on the fetus yes that, that is exactly what he's talking about okay i think he's being a little jokey there well yes i just want to say that as much as ishmael does not believe in modern science i don't think he believes in like the doctrine of signatures yeah no I, I i agree with you that he's being jokey uh but um yes uh and uh then he talks about like the huge cavern within the mouth yep um and and the like sort of uh ridge at the top of it and the uh the baleen running down from that ridge. Also, he has a line I really enjoy, which is, Good lord, is this the road that Jonah went? Yeah. Um. And he talks about, you know, the amount of space in there and the shape of the uh, whalebone slats of the baleen, um, uh, which um, he describes in detail. Yeah. Yeah, and he also talks about how apparently some whalers uh, claim to be able to read uh, a whale's age by, like, markings and shapes in its baleen, Um, which, uh, uh, here's the thing. You were saying that we don't think he credits this kind of medieval theory of, like, uh, the influence of uh, experiences during pregnancy or whatever, Mm -hmm. but then he also says this thing about how it's, like, you know, this idea of reading whales' age from, like, the markings on their baleen as if they were trees that you could read the rings. Though the certainty of this criterion is far from demonstrable, yet it has the savor of analogical probability. So he's literally saying, like, because there's an analogy here, because these two things look yeah, similar. Yeah, I mean, I think that he's, you know, he's crediting it a little, but he's mostly crediting it because he wants to claim that right whales can be very old. Yeah. Um, I don't think he's presenting this as though we ought to. Like, frankly, I think if you were presenting this as a be- particularly believable kind of whaling knowledge, he would be explaining how you do it. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think his his perception of, of how likely it is that you can tell the age of a whale based on its baleen is he seems to think it's like possible and kind of interesting but not yeah. certain um <sighs> also we now have the um various uh terms used to quote ishmael in old times about the uh what he calls the venetian blinds of the whale the baleen because it's a bunch of slats you know going up and down yeah people refer to them as whiskers and hogs bristles and uh fins um and uh this also causes him to note in a footnote that right whales do in fact have like whiskers as in like hairs um growing on their like upper lip no it's it's the upper part of the outer end of the lower jaw oh you're right so it's like a horrible little lip growth out on the edge of its sulk yeah like it, like a li- like where maybe where a soul patch would be, except maybe not even that. I think it's coming up on the top of the lip. So humans don't have those hairs, and it's horrible to imagine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, of course, uh, as everyone knows, uh, Ishmael mentions that uh, whalebone is used for women's undergarments. Um, you mean it furnishes to the ladies their busks and other stiffening contrivances? Yes. 
which which apparently uh, is on the decline uh, because yes. uh, there was more call for whalebone under things uh, during Queen Anne's time, which would be the the beginning of the 18th century um, when people wore farthing ales. Um, There's also. Um... He notes that, uh, and as those ancient dames moved about gaily, though in the jaws of the whale, as you may say, even so, in a shower with the like thoughtlessness, do we nowadays fly under the same jaws for protection? Because uh, apparently one major use of the baleen in, you know, uh, Ishmael's time was for umbrella stays. Yeah. Uh, anyway, then he also compares the inside of, uh, of the right whale's mouth to... Uh, the Great Harlem Organ, which is a uh, a famous huge organ in a, a church in the city of Harlem, um, uh, the Dutch city of Harlem. Yes, not not uh, not Harlem in New York City. Yeah, <laughs> I did think that was worth mentioning. Yeah, Harlem with two A's. Um, yep, yep. And uh, he does also have this um, sort of moment of like, you know, no, no, forget all about the baleen. Stand in here and look around as though you didn't know what any of this is, and it's like. Yes, Ishmael, that's pretty easy because you haven't made it much easier to understand. Yeah. Uh, he also describes the um, the tongue as a carpet and talks about it in terms of how much oil can be wrung out of it. There's this constant undertone of like, here's a big, you know, weird part of the whale. By the way, this is how much oil contains. Yeah. Here's another big, weird part of the whale. Here's what you can, you know, process this for. Here's a third part of the whale, oil again. Here's an interesting thought. How is it that Ishmael gets all this information about how much oil can be processed out of a right whale when he's never processed a right whale? The Pequod is uh, not commissioned to hunt for them. Yeah, you know, that's a very good question. Um, I guess he must be... Perhaps there are people on the Pequod who have hunted right whales and he's hearing their stories. Or or he has since gone whaling on non-sperm whale ships after Mm. the Pequod. Because we do know that he's alive and telling his story to his uh, Lehman friends uh, years later. Yes, that's true. Um, and that he has apparently been sailing around the world and quite possibly whaling. Yeah. Um. So uh, now um, he's, he's like, you know, so having seen all this, you should be able to tell that the sperm whale and the right whale have totally different heads. Yeah, he, uh, he sums up the kind of the differences between them. Uh, I think it's kind of like vaguely interesting that the way he decides to sum that up is mostly by listing the features that each one does not have. Like he doesn't list it like, well, the sperm whale has all the sperm and it has teeth. (laughs) Instead, he says the right whale does not have sperm. It does not have teeth, etc. Yep, Um, yep. And it does not have the, um, the narrow, what he describes as the long slender mandible of a lower jaw like the sperm whales. Yeah. And scarcely, and the sperm whale, meanwhile, does not have baleen, does not have a giant lower lip, and does not have a tongue, or much of one. Yeah. Yeah, I think technically sperm whales do have a tongue, but it's just, like, attached to the bottom and very small. Um, And uh, then, you know, uh, he says, like, all right, uh, here we are, we're done observing these heads because they're about to fall into the ocean. 
uh, and ends with... Uh, but, like, fall into the ocean is, and they're about to be, like, cut loose and let to drop. Yes, yes. They're going to be... Uh, they're going to ditch the right whales, and then they're also going to... Or, I guess they're probably going to process the sperm whales, then ditch it, and then they're going to ditch the right whales Yeah, as well. basically process the sperm whales and ditch both of them when the sperm whale's head has been processed. Yeah. This doesn't quite work out, but, uh, you know, most of it happens. Yeah. Uh, and then I... Uh, in, in the last paragraph... Um, Based on the uh, expressions of the whale's heads, uh, he kind of estimates with what uh, philosophical perspectives they must have met death. Um, yeah, this is... When I said that these uh, chapters ended well. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, he says, uh, Can you catch the expression of the sperm whales there? It is the same he died with, only some of the longer wrinkles in the forehead seem now faded away. I think his broad brow to be full of a prairie-like placidity, born of a speculative indifference as to death. But mark the other head's expression. See that amazing lower lip pressed by accident against the vessel's side so as firmly to embrace the jaw. Does not this whole head seem to speak of an enormous practical resolution in facing death? This right whale I take to have been a Stoic. The sperm whale a Platonian, who might have taken up Spinoza in his later years. So he's kind of saying the right whale had the Stoic kind of like uh, you know, uh, whatever happens, it doesn't affect me. I, I remain, like, kind of emotionally secure attitude mm-hmm. towards death. Whereas A the stiff st- upper lip. Yes. <laughs> or, in this case, a giant blubbery lower lip. Yes. Uh, whereas the, plato- the sperm whale, the Platonian and possible Spinozan, is also indifferent to death, but for, I think, a different reason. Like, the, the reason that a, a Platonian might be indifferent to death is an understanding that, you know, the soul... Um, is eternal and, like, partakes of God. Yes, I think that Spinoza is uh, here being invoked for exactly that sort of eternalism, that sort of sense of, I cannot actually be harmed. Yes, yeah. So it's it's interesting that he is, he is reading in both of them uh, a kind of philosophical indifference to death, but he is uh, getting down to the details of exactly which kind of philosophical approach. Somewhat ridiculously, yes. Uh, what I really think is funny here is that he's just insisting, no, no, both whales were, in the end, they, they understood and accepted their deaths. It's like, you know, that's a very useful thing for a whaler to believe. <laughs> yes. Uh, but now we have chapter 76, The Battering Ram. Ear quitting for the nonce, the sperm whale's head, I would have you, as a sensible physiologist, simply particularly remark its front aspect in all its compacted collectedness. Yeah, so this is this is a chapter where uh, Ishmael has a theory about the purpose of a part of the sperm whale's anatomy, and he is going to kind of uh, gradually build up to it, lay out all his evidence, and then kind of uh, gesture at what he thinks it is for. Yep, yep. Um, uh, but, you know, we, knowing the title of the chapter is The Battering Ram, can make some assumptions as we're yeah. moving through. yeah. Yeah, he's basically trying to suggest that the the front of the sperm whale's head might be used for a battering ram, and he's going to build up like a, a bunch of suggestions about why he thinks it would be particularly effective for that purpose. Yes, he's arguing that it uh, forms a like powerful, almost a vertical wall pushing through the water. That it's made of something very hard but flexible, rather than being bony. It's full of a sort of 
gelatinous and fibrous mass that will absorb immense blows without breaking in any way. It will be uninjurable by impact, is his argument. And it's uh, it, the blubber that surrounds the front of the sperm whale's head is particularly like thick and tough, yep. um, to the point that Ishmael uh, says he thinks it lacks sensation. Um, yes, and he also argues that it's... Um, uh, like, the brain is far back in the skull. The cranial development is very recessed. Um, and the uh, general, like, effect of the whole thing is that it is not sensory. He, he insists that it is, it is a blind, a dead blind wall without a single organ or tender prominence of any sort whatsoever. And while that might be true, um, it's definitely something where the, the echolocation thing kind of undermines him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I... You know, I, I would assume that whales' skins are, are fairly tough, that it probably takes mm-hmm. a significant uh, impact to really... Do much. Do, do, but, but also, I don't think uh, that necessarily means that they do not have, like, a sense of touch along the front of yeah, their yeah. heads. Although, I will say, he does argue, I think convincingly, that, like, you know, in his practical experience, harpoons won't go into the head, like, the head or front of a sperm whale. Yes. They'll just, they'll bounce off. They won't lodge. Yeah, and he compares this to uh, a, a sort of practical sailing contrivance, which is that when two big, heavy merchant ships are are at the docks and they are, you know, in danger of kind of They're crowding each other. The hulls are bumping together, which is going to do significant damage to both because they're not built for impacts. Yes. Uh, what, what the sailors do to uh, prevent this disaster is that they put... Um, a large round wad of tow and cork enveloped in the thickest and toughest of oxhide between them. Uh, so his point here is that it is a sort of flexible, um, in some sense, soft, not soft exactly, but like... It is not a rigid object, but a flexible one. It's more of like a padding, but it still survives where wooden frames and iron uh, crowbars would snap. Yes, exactly. Um... And then, uh, uh, furthermore, he suggests that um, it's possible that, uh, in the same way that some fish have swimming bladders, um, which is like, you know, a a sack inside the fish that can fill with air uh, to help it uh, be buoyant. Well, it specifically is the swimming bladder lets a fish control buoyancy so they can sink or rise at will rather than having to swim up or down. Yes, yeah, um... By, like, basically controlling uh, the, the pressure. Yes, um, and so, therefore the density. Yeah, so he is suggesting that maybe uh, the, um, the sperm whale's head and the sort of oily structures inside of it uh, may also have some ability to, um, to connect, to, to absorb air and to affect its... Uh, to be a swim bladder. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, he specifically says... It has hypothetically occurred to me, I say, that those mystical lung-celled honeycombs there may possibly have some hitherto unknown and unsuspected connection with the outer air so as to be susceptible to atmospheric distension and contraction. Yeah, um, and I think... my cat is sneezing, or or sniffing. Please don't hairball all over the couch, Panini. Oh, yeah, that does uh, seem like a possibility. Let's just pretend that's not happening. We'll give him some discretion. (laughs) Um, I, I think there is some theory that this may be true. Um, like, yeah. 
It doesn't seem, it seems like there is a scientific debate on the subject. Um, but, Whales, still unknown. But to quote Wikipedia, the spermaceti organs may also help adjust the whale's buoyancy. Um, and there's a number of uh, sort of citations for how this might be affected. Um, it doesn't seem like we believe that they actually uh, take in air, like Ishmael suggests. It has more to do with... Um, like, Other kinds of buoyancy? Yeah, it has something to do with like uh, water temperature and the uh, solidity slash liquidity of the, of the oils and waxes inside. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there's also some uh, suggestions that this doesn't actually happen. Um, yes, specifically, another issue is that if the spermaceti does indeed cool and solidify, it would affect the whale's echolocation ability just when it needs it most, parentheses for hunting in the depths, which, I gotta say, that sentence, cetacean needed. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, and, and to be clear, Ishmael's bringing up this idea of the, the spermaceti organs as the, um, as, as a uh, swimming bladder, um, specifically to support his battering ram idea, because I think he's basically suggesting that air pressure is very powerful. If this be so, fancy the irresistibleness of that might, to which the most impalpable and destructive of all elements contributes. Um, hmm. Which, okay, the, the sort of, perhaps saying that he's talking about air pressure there is a little bit too... Um, uh, uh, crediting him a little bit too much with having thought this through. Yeah, it kind of sounds like he's just saying the nature of air is powerful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's suggesting that like, hmm, it's selectively permeable. Like he's basically saying it's magic. It has these strange powers. Imagine how much more potent it would then be. Also, I just want to say Wikipedia suggested that Herman Melville suggests in Moby Dick that uh, it might be used as a battering ram. So that's very funny to me. Um, In any case, I do love this, again, yet again, hitting it out of the park with the ending of the chapter. Yeah, I I think uh, this is another case where we may as well just read uh, this Well, now, Mark. (laughs) Sorry, I'll I'll start. The the paragraph starts with, now, Mark. And I just had to. (laughs) Yeah, I can't blame you. Yep. Now, Mark, unerringly impelling this dead, impregnable, uninjurable wall, and this most buoyant thing within, there swims behind it all a mass of tremendous life, only to be adequately estimated as piled wood is, by the cord, and all obedient to one volition as the smallest insect, so that when I shall hereafter detail to you all the specialties and concentrations of potency everywhere lurking in this expansive monster, when I shall show you some of his more inconsiderable braining feats— I trust you will have renounced all ignorant incredulity, and be ready to abide by this, that though the sperm whale stove a passage through the isthmus of Darien and mixed the Atlantic with the Pacific, you would not elevate one hair of your eyebrow. For unless you own the whale, you are but a provincial and sentimentalist in truth. But clear truth is a thing for salamander giants only to encounter. How small the chances for the provincials then! What befell the weakling youth, lifting the dread goddess's veil at Sais? Yeah, so he is basically saying, if you don't believe that whales can, like, break an isthmus with their heads, then you are just not ready to understand real truth. Also, we want to be clear, the Isthmus of Darien is where uh, the Panama Canal would eventually be built. Yeah. So he's imagining a whale drilling through, like, miles of ground. Yes. Which is amazing. Yes. Just ka Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um. 
Sorry to just do mouth noises. No, there. no, it was good. Uh, I also just love the um, the intensity of this paragraph where he's just talking about how, and I think this is what he's really getting at, is all this power and strength and this immensity of life is all unified by a single will. This is a single living thing the size of a ship. Yeah, like I think part of what he's, part of what is he's saying to like support this idea that whales can stave through anything with their giant battering ram heads is not just that the the head itself is like physically suited for the task but also that like the will of the whale is suited to that task yeah it's it's that the whale again has this immense vitality and power and only a single like will and it's interesting to compare this with his uh sort of like oh yeah whales get kind of afraid and dart around and don't know what's going on during a whaling hunt because uh they can't see in two directions at once but that's what their eyes want to do like here it's sort of the opposite argument that you know okay yes a whale being hunted is sort of at uh you know off its um off balance is uncertain is dealing with things sort of uh poorly but a whale that is all directed to a single thing it's volition singular and when it's able to focus it is an unstoppable power that like with you know a body the size of a building yes um, we should probably explain by the way the illusion in that last sentence also the uh the sentence before that because that well, whole last section is difficult yeah so the the last sentence what befell the weakling youth he's referring to a a poem uh, titled The Veiled Statue at Sais. Uh, which is about um, the Veil of Isis, a uh, a symbol and imagery in both poetry and culture for, I think, much longer than just, like, the uh, Romantic period poets, um, of a specific statue of Isis that was supposed to be veiled and which people would, you know, look under. And the idea is that often the way, you know, the Veil of Isis as a symbol is used is this idea that, like, nature's secrets are hidden, that there is, you know, there is something to be found by lifting the veil of Isis. It's sort of the uh, the pursuit of science in the natural world. Um, however, in the poem, the seer, the the youth who lifts the veil is horrified and cannot speak of what he sees beneath it. So, you know, whales are terrifying. They are true things, and they have deep knowledge, but that knowledge is unutterable and unspeakable. Yes. Uh... And then in the previous sentence, you mentioned before we recorded this podcast, you were like, I'd love to hear what PowerMobyDick.com has yeah, to say about I the salamander giants. Yeah, I looked over your shoulder. It's... Their citation is, is not very helpful. All Their they citation have... is extremely weak, frankly. All it says about the phrase salamander giants is, some people, though probably not Melville, believed that salamanders lived in fire and therefore had supernatural powers. So I... Uh... I mean, I think what's going on here is that the phrase salamander giants is obviously elusive and requires, like, explication. Yeah. But PowerMobyDick.com does not actually know <laughs> what it means, and all they can say is, well, here's what a salamander is? Yeah, I mean, I think that they almost have it, because I've, I've been looking at it, and I think I know what it is, so we don't mm-hmm. think we have to type. Um, I, I don't think we have to Google oh, for so it. Oh, so you did look this up? No, I just I think I see what it is now that we've run over it a couple times. Okay. It's... Because what he's talking about is this idea that, like, you know, he says, um, unless you own the whale, you are but a provincial and sentimentalist in truth. And that's truth with the capital T. What he means not is, like, you are truly a provincial and sentimentalist, but rather you think yourselves a seeker after truth. You think you, you know, care deeply about what is true. But unless you're willing to face up to the awful fact of the whale, 
you're only playing with weak and easy truths, the ones that don't upset you. The real truth seekers have to delve into this. You know, clear truth is a thing for salamander giants only to encounter, people who are capable of living in flame, of taking, you know, of going into this immense heat, and also are great of stature. And I think the combination of illusions and, like, like, he's using salamander as an adjective to mean, like, someone who is willing, who is capable of living in this, like, intense condition and harshness. Um, but the result is Salamander Giants, which sounds more like a tabletop RPG monster manual entry than, yeah. you know, uh, an illusion. Anyways, feel free to Google it now. I just yeah. wanted to... Yeah, no, your, your point is taken. I think you are probably right that this is not an allusion to, like, a specific creature from a medieval bestiary or anything. But I do want to simply Google it. You're going to get the giant salamander if you Google that. Oh, yeah, there's, like, an actual animal yeah, called a, the a giant, giant salamander. salamander. <laughs> I think they're mostly found in China. They're, they're, they're big and cute. I like salamanders. Well, I've found something called the Herpetology of Herman Melville's movie Amazing. Dick. On herpetology.com. It is amazing to me the number of, um, like, random websites that, like, collect information, you know, that have this sense of being a curated body of knowledge. They just have a, by the way, here's Moby Dick's intersection with this body of knowledge page. Yeah, yeah. Here, I think control F for salamander. Yeah, I don't think that this is a particularly, uh, yeah, um, oh my god. It's the same thing. Okay, so first of all, yeah, this is not in any way, uh, more elucidating than PowerMobyDick.com's citation, but also, uh, they are, so, Herpetology.com cites, uh, Mansfield and Vincent, 1952. Yeah, which is, I think, a, um. A, like an annotated edition of Moby Dick, okay. uh, which in that book, the Mansfield and Vincent observe that, quote, Melville here ignored the exploding of the vulgar error that salamanders live in the fire. And I'm like, you guys! <laughs> He's obviously making like a metaphor here. I don't think even Ishmael believes that salamanders live in fire. Like, come on! As someone who has a flaming salamander uh, icon on, like, most social media, I feel slightly owned by this conversation. <laughs> but um, the, uh, yeah, no, the, the suggestion there is that it is, in fact, the seeker after truth needs the supernatural, you know, capacity to dwell in flames that is being suggested here. Yes. So, yes, my, my sense is the best sense anyone's managed to get. Yes. <laughs> but it is, it is not a super clear phrase and is really the case that he's using salamander as an adjective not as a noun and that's wild and i'm gonna start doing that <laughs> i'm gonna start referring to things that are like like fireproof as salamander blank like uh you know um i'm gonna need the the salamander pads sure sure or um you know this is a, a salamander thermometer it can dwell within the oven <laughs> Uh, all right, I think that that covers that chapter. Yep. I, again, amazing ending to a chapter. Really fantastic piece of just wildly elusive uh, and elusive in this case. Mm -hmm. Come on, that one was good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, language. I just really love when he does this. When Ishmael is just like, I had a classical education and I'm going to use it. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of fun. Uh, so now for chapter 77. Which is also elusive in its title. Yes, the Great Heidelberg Tun, which is uh, referring to a huge wine vat in the cellar of the castle in Heidelberg. 
Uh, ton being here, T-U-N, uh, yeah. which means like a big vessel. Yes. Um, so yeah, he is referring to a, a specific famous huge wine vat, which is a tourist attraction. Yeah, is is that a um a Wikipedia link I see in its uh Yes, do you want to just look at the annotation? Wikipedia page? I just want to see a ton? picture of the Heidelberg ton. Yeah, all right. Take wow, a look. it's a cask. Yeah. It's just a ginormous cask with a There's a dance floor on top of it. Oh my god, there's like a little like like it looks like a widow's walk. There's like a little promontory. That thing is very large. Yeah. Yep. I'd kind of hoped it had some kind of mythic resonance, but it's from 1751, and uh, it's just big. Yeah. It, oh, it shows up in uh, Baron Munchausen. Yeah, it seems to have been uh, referred to in a lot of literature, just because it's a, a famous, huge cask. Yeah, and also, frankly, I think authors have often had been like, wow, that much booze. <clears throat> yes. Uh, so the reason that he is talking about, the, the, the thing that uh, Ishmael is alluding to here is um, the internal structures of the sperm whale's head that are full of uh, sperm and like other whale oil. Yep. Here we have the spermaceti. Yes. Um, so, so, uh, so this is the part where I really would like you to just look at like a, a cross-section <laughs> picture of what a sperm whale's head looks like. You don't think people should be able to mentally imagine a coin, a coin, <laughs> a, a coin, I think, a coin, which he uh, footnotes with coin is not a Euclidean term. It belongs to the pure nautical mathematics. I know not that it has been defined before. A coin is a solid which differs from a wedge in having its sharp end formed by the steep inclination of one side instead of the mutual tapering of both sides, also used by printers. And uh, I'm I'm really certain that that's just a wedge. Yeah, I mean... Like, that's just a description of a wedge with, like, a right angle in one corner rather than being a, a mutually curving edge. It wedge. In fact, if I think of a wedge or inclined plane, this is exactly what I think of. Yeah, like the, yes, I agree. It, it was kind of confusing to me when I first read this definition of a coin, because, yeah, if I think wedge, I think like a, like a, um, like a, a, a door jam, you know? The yeah, you yeah. You prop a door open, and that has a, a right-angled bottom. It's um, possible that the difference he intends here is that the coin doesn't come to a sharp point or he does reference a sharp point so it's difficult but no, rather I, that it like it cuts off in the in the version we just saw no i think the kind of wedge he's talking about is like a mathematical wedge meaning like a like a a tall thin like triangle. an isosceles triangle and i saw the right triangle thank you exactly um yeah i'm gonna be honest if you say wedge to me i think of a right triangle more than an isosceles triangle yeah no i agree um and then i rotate it in my mind <laughs> quit bragging <laughs> Uh, but and anyhow, so the shape of a sperm whale's head, um, it has, uh, you know, the, the, the lower wedge or coin, uh, is, is the, the bony part of it, the, the skull, the jaws, uh, and then the upper wedge is an unctuous mass, wholly free from bones. Um, so... Uh, and then there's there's kind of a horizontal plane that divides this uh and then uh at the top is um he what uh ishmael calls uh the case uh and what is known to uh modern anatomy as uh the spermaceti organ because that is the part of the whale's head that is full of spermaceti yep it's 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 a cask it's a case it's a giant 
you know, container full of sperm. Yes. And then uh, the lower part, uh, Ishmael calls the junk. Um, it's also in modern times called the melon. Um, and that's, that is also full of, I guess, technically not spermaceti, but like a oil, some other kind of oil. And it, um, but unlike the spermaceti organ, which is just like literally a hollow, hollow zone full of spermaceti. Yeah. The, the, the melon has like kind of a honeycomb of fibers. Um, yeah. It's all, it's all weird biology. Like the kind of biology that makes me go, hmm, <laughs> in science fiction novels as well. Yeah. Um, um but yeah, the, uh, he also mentions, uh, as that famous great tierce, the, uh, the Heidelberg Tun, is mystically carved in front, so the whale's vast plated forehead forms innumerable strange devices for the emblematical adornment of his wondrous tun. Yep. So there's, like, weird, uncertain wrinkles in the forehead of the whale, just like there are weird, uncertain markings that cannot be deciphered on, as far as I can tell, every square inch of the sperm whale based on his current descriptions of it. <laughs> like... Everything has these Ishmael. It has stopped being unique. Just say, like every other part of the whale, this part is covered in strange hieroglyphics. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, supposedly, um, spermaceti is uh, liquid during the whale's life, but quickly solidifies and crystallizes when exposed to the air. Um, so you so. want to very rapidly, once you uh, open up the head, you want to rapidly um, move all of it down to be um, like processed while it's yes. still liquid. Yes. Um, and uh, the, the, the case or the spermaceti organ is also coated with like a fine membrane on the inside. Um. Also, I want to just say, when he talks about it like crystallizing, he describes having seen it and says that... Uh, it soon begins to concrete, sending forth beautiful crystalline shoots, as when the first thin, delicate ice is just forming in water, which is both beautiful and deeply horrifying to me. Yeah. I don't want to think about a, a body part crystallizing. That, that is fair. Um, uh, and uh, uh, he, he cites the size of the, of the case. Uh, because it is as long as the entire sperm whale's head, which is about 26 feet long, so yep, pretty huge. About a third of the whale, and he describes it as generally yields about 500 gallons of sperm, though from unavoidable circumstances, considerable of it is spilled, leaks, and dribbles away, or is otherwise irrevocably lost in the ticklish business of securing what you can. And I have to say, if there isn't even a little double entendre intended there, <laughs> I don't understand Ishmael's train of thought. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, the ticklish business. Yeah, you might be right. Yeah, exactly. The ticklish business of securing what you can. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. I absolutely think there is uh, some, uh, a bit of implication a dirty joke going yeah. on here. Yeah. Um, he also uh, talks about something which we actually kind of predicted previously, which is that when the whale is being beheaded, um, the, the person doing the beheading has to be extremely careful not to puncture, uh, the spermaceti organ. Um, because if you did, it would all just drain out immediately before you've even gotten the head in place, especially since the neck, like the rest, the, the whale's head is pointing up, like it's so that its body would have been down if the body were still attached. So if you got on a hole there as you're pulling the head up, the spermaceti would just all drain right out into the ocean. Yep. I just imagined a spermaceti oil slick from someone fucking that up and... 
I want to go home. <laughs> All right. So that is the uh, that is the the Heidelberg Tun, the the Spermaceti organ, the case. That much being said, attend now, I pray you, to that marvelous and, in this particular instance, almost fatal operation whereby the sperm whale's great Heidelberg Tun is tapped. Dun dun dun. Yes. Uh, so. He actually had like a a. a, a cliffhanger on a non-narrative chapter <laughs> you're right that's pretty impressive so yeah uh next chapter 78 cistern and buckets and this is uh, about the actual event when uh the pequod uh got the the spermaceti out of the head of this bit sperm whale that they had hunted yep um as mentioned basically everything that has to do with disassembling a whale is mostly done at least when it's like interesting by uh Queequeg, uh Dagu and Tashtego and here Tashtego is the one uh who climbs up onto the head basically yeah so th- there's a lot of description of the details of this operation basically he's got to uh climb out onto the head with a block and tackle um and so uh, climbing out onto the mast with the block and tackle and then descend from that like mission impossible style down onto the head <laughs> yes uh, and uh, some people hand him up, like, a, a huge pole and a bucket. Um, and a, uh, a sharp spade, as, us- as usual, because he's going to be the one to cut in to the ton. Yes, so he finds the best place to pierce uh, the, the case, and um, he connects the, the bucket to the pulley and uses a bu- the pole to push the bucket into the sperm, and uh, then... People down below use the pulley to hoist and lower the bucket and uh, empty it into, empty all the spermaceti in the bucket into a tub. Yeah, the thing about this that's really wild to me is that you're, like, lifting the bucket out of the whale. And he describes it, and this is just, for me, again, mildly distressing. Uh, Up comes the bucket again, all bubbling like a dairymaid's pail of new milk. So, like, it's now dripping with spermaceti. It's lifted up, like, very full, and then just gets swung down and lowered down the side of the whale head because he's up in the air now. Yes. So it's not like he can just hand it off. So you're now, you're raising and lowering these buckets on the, um, on this pulley. And I think it mentions that it takes, um, uh, some, like, 80 or 90 buckets full before we get to the incident. Yes. So they've been doing this for a long time. Tashtigo's been up on the slippery dead whale face, um, like cliff face, yeah, like a whale yeah. face, uh, pushing the bucket deeper and deeper until it's now going down like 20 feet into the whale to get full yes. before getting d- slowly drawn back up again. But that must take hours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, as you alluded to, uh, after... They've been doing this for about 80 or 90 buckets. Uh, Tashtigo somehow uh, falls into the whale's head. Yep, yep. It's uh, with a horrible, oily gurgling, to quote Ishmael. Uh, I like that Ishmael suggests that, you know, maybe he was reckless and let go for a moment, uh, or whether he was just standing on something extremely treacherous and oozy, or whether the evil one himself would have it to fall out so, without stating his particular reasons. So, you know, whether it was a human error or simply unavoidable material circumstances or the devil. Yes. Uh, so, um, uh, Dagu is the, the first to act, uh, calling out man overboard and, uh, getting, he, he, 
Dagu like climbs into the bucket to be hauled up to the whale's head to try to save him. Yeah, yeah. He's also mentioned as being amid the general consternation. First came to his senses, so he's the one who's like, no, you know, um, man overboard. I'll take care of this. You know, swings up and uh, upon um, getting up there, sees down that. Um, uh, I think the thing that's most immediately like, like just exciting about this is you can see the whale's head throbbing below the water level because the whale's head was always a little bit in the water. Right. Tashtigo's fallen down so far and it's been so lowered in the uh, level of sperm that he's now drenched in spermaceti below the water level and is like beating against the side of the whale and it's like shuddering. Yeah, the whole whale's head is moving with Tashtigo's uh, desperate attempts to get out. Throbbing and heaving just below the surface of the sea as if that moment seized with some momentous idea. Yeah. So I, I like the... The consistent return when dealing with heads to, like, thoughts and philosophy, yeah. even amid this, like, very physical butchering and uh, accident. Yes. Uh, and while Dagu is, is trying, he's, like, on top of the head and trying to uh, rescue Tashtigo, uh, unfortunately, one of the hooks stuck in the head uh, tears out and the whole thing shakes and the whole ship shakes. Yes, as if smitten by an iceberg. Uh, also described, the drunk ship reeled and shook. So everything is going wrong. Yes. Um, there's only one hook still holding up the uh, whale's head um, and might give way at any moment. There's this hook swinging around. And meanwhile, Tashtigo is potentially drowning in spermaceti. Yeah, uh, and uh, everyone calls out to Dagu to come down, but he's still desperate to try to save his comrade. And he's um, he, what he's doing to try to save him is like kind of uh, shoving the... Uh, shoving the pole with the bucket on it down into the head. Yeah, so that Tashtigo can theoretically grab the bucket and then he can pull him up that way. Yes, uh, but it, it seems like it's it's just not working. And uh, yeah. Meanwhile, Stub is you know shout is being like, "Are you ramming home a cartridge there, Avast? How will that help him? Jamming that iron-bound bucket on top of his head, Avast? Will ye?" So he's not being very helpful. Yeah, he's doing his best, but it's just not helping. And no, no, I mean Stubb. Oh, Stubb, Stubb's yes. not being helpful. Stubb is shouting, what are you doing? Stop doing that without giving any, like, suggestions. Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear that what Tegu is trying is not working, but I do think, yes, yeah. he is He is doing his best here. Um, and then uh, somebody cries out, stand clear of the tackle, cried a voice like the bursting of a rocket. Uh, and uh, suddenly the, the head drops into the ocean. Um, yeah, and so... The, that person must have seen that it was about to fall. Because... Yes, and, and Dagu manages to hold on to the tackles and not fall into the ocean with the head. Uh, but uh, Tashtigo is totally fucked now because the head is sinking. Uh, this makes me think most of, like, you know, the action movie scene where the car goes into the water with someone still inside it who's struggling to get out and someone has to, like, swim and, down after them. Yeah, absolutely. And what's going to happen? Uh, who's going to save him? But hardly had the blinding vapor cleared away when a naked figure with a boarding sword in his hand was for one swift moment seen hovering over the bulwarks. The next, a loud splash announced that my brave Queequeg, my brave Queequeg had dived to the rescue. Yeah, I gotta say, the fact that it's like, he's invisible, he's unseen, and then you just see him like literally in the act of leaping over the side with the boarding sword. It's very swashbuckly. Yeah, absolutely. Queequeg is a fucking hero in this moment. Yes. Um, so... Uh, and so um, there's a little while of just, like, 
you know, ongoing chaos. They're lowering a boat to try and pick up the uh, the swimmer, um, and you know, hopefully Tashtigo as well. And uh, they're, dig- just, they're watching the water for ripples, and no one knows what's about to happen. Um. And then uh, Dagu, um, who you know, because he's swinging from the uh, from the tackle, can see this. You know, cries out, and they look, and a hand thrusts out of the water. Uh, and Dagu is also the one to call that it is both of them. Uh, and, and they can see that Queequeg is swimming with one hand and pulling Tashtigo by the hair with the other. Um, uh, and Tashtigo, Tashtigo was long in coming too, and Queequeg did not look very brisk. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't think so. No, so, um, as you might be wondering, how had this noble rescue been accomplished? Why, diving after the slowly descending head, Queequeg with his keen sword had made side lunges near its bottom so as to scuttle a large hole there, then dropping his sword had thrust his long arm far inwards and upwards and so hauled out our poor Tash by the head. Yeah, and there's this sort of complicated operation here where uh, at first Queequeg grabs Tashtigo's leg, uh, but well, you, you get the joke there, right? Yes. I've, okay. So he grabs Tashtigo's leg, uh, but he uh, decides that it won't it won't do to try to pull him out by the leg. And so that was not as it ought to be and might occasion great trouble. Yes. And so he basically uh, uh, he, he shoves Tashtigo back in and spins him around and grabs him by the head as if correcting a breech birth. Yes, that is that is the very specific reason that it is incorrect is that he is trying to correctly birth Tashtigo out of the head. Yes. Like Athena. Yes. Yes. This is, uh... Yep, and... This is the the courage and great skill in obstetrics of Queequeg. Yes. Also, the great head itself, that was doing as well as could be expected. (laughs) But yes, also you have the amazing line, uh, Midwifery should be taught in the same course with fencing and boxing, riding and rowing. Yeah. Um, and, uh... Uh, it, um, yeah. There's some more, like, things to clear up, such as, for example, uh, we thought the tissued infiltrated head of the sperm whale was the lightest, most quirky part about him, and yet thou makest it sink in an element of far greater specific gravity than itself. We have thee there, Ishmael. Um, not at all, but I have ye. <laughs> uh, and he goes on to explain that basically it's the spermaceti that is so uh, buoyant, buoyant, and, and that once that's been mostly emptied out, the whale's head is actually pretty dense. Yeah, and so it was just a large, dense, empty sort of hollow that was rapidly filling with water as it sank. Yes, um, but it does. It is the case that um, it sank uh, slowly. Yeah. So uh, the, it. On some level, Tashtigo was saved by the fact that the head is dense, but not that dense. So yeah, and that there was, was able to and reach that, him. You know, there was still some spermaceti in it and so on. You know, basically that it was slow enough that Queequeg could swim down and cut his way through. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and we end with a, a sort of... A... Well, first, he has this really terrible line, which is... Queequeg was afforded a fair chance for performing his agile obstetrics on the run, as you may say. Yes, it was a running delivery, so it was. Like, you know, like a messenger delivering something? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and, just uh, terrible puns. In the last paragraph, he speculates on, you know, what it would have been like if Tashtigo had died uh, drowning in spermaceti. Um, the very whitest and daintiest of fragrant spermaceti. Yes, uh, and, and the, he says the only uh, sweeter death uh, would have been the delicious death of an Ohio honey hunter who, seeking honey in the crotch of a hollow tree, found such ex- exceeding store of it that, leaning too far over, it sucked him in, 
so that he died embalmed. Which, wild. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's this idea of like this incredibly rich, valuable, odiferous uh, substance to be drowned in. Uh, also, the final sentence of this chapter, again, all of these chapters end well. How many, think ye, have likewise fallen into Plato's honey head and sweetly perished there? He just keeps returning to this usage of, like, the head as the the cask of philosophy and of yeah. thought. And, like, the dangers and values of squeezing that head for its juices. Yeah, and this is also an allusion to a specific legend about Plato, uh, which is that when he was an infant, bees made honey in his mouth. Wow. Yeah. A so- you know... I, I, Power Moby Dick says that this is a sign that his speech would flow like honey, which, that's nice, but on the other hand, I'm just imagining being a parent watching bees nesting in my child's mouth and just going, <laughs> I know, it's kind of horrific. Yeah, um, yeah, like Plato. Yes. Um, um, anyway, yeah, the idea of drowning in Plato definitely makes me think of uh, that bit where uh, Ishmael was at the masthead just yeah. speculating about all the forms swimming in the ocean beneath him. The danger and the possibility of uh, ye young Platonists simply falling into air and being at one with the pantheistic universe. Yes. There's definitely a strong sense throughout this book that's just coming to coming to the surface here in the question of heads of like the abstract, the idea of like high and airy abstraction as an intoxicant is a thing you can get taken away with, which is sort of the opposite, I think, from the kind of, you know, philosophy and depth of knowledge that uh, that Ahab saw in the head when he spoke to it, mm. when he spoke of all the secret and terrible things, as opposed to a sweet and sticky and uh, in some ways dangerous in a different way philosophy. Philosophy is not being equated to, like, you know, gnosis, to this deep knowledge. It's being equated to, like, an intoxicant. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, look, I... Uh... I am constantly struggling in these in these chapters and will continue to struggle with the fact that like we are talking about sperm here. But, <laughs> but I don't think it's irrelevant, right? Like uh the idea of like drowning in pleasure. Yeah, I like he is yeah. he he is talking in this paragraph about like the the sort of richness of it more than that illusion, but like I don't think it has nothing to do with this idea. Yeah, but I think that the reason why he's focusing, he's not making that sort of joke here much, is because he wants that abstracted thing, which there are ways in which, you know, the, the, the pleasure of sperm is uh, aligned with that sort of pantheistic loss of self, that um, that sort of abstract airiness that is definitely opposite to the, the grim secrets and darker knowledge that uh, Ahab covets. Yeah, this is all, there's a, there's a chapter coming up later on where they're actually processing the spermaceti that I, I'm looking forward to with great excitement and great dread, <laughs> um, but that's in the future. Um, you don't want to uh, squeeze sperm hand in hand with me, Mark? Yeah, this is why that chapter is something to dread, because that's just a, a line from it that really sticks with you after you read the chapter, because oh. Ishmael is just extensively talking about specifically ways of processing spermaceti that are extremely suggestive. Yes. Uh, it's it's a lot. It really is. Um, Anyways, from that, let's get to phrenology. Yes, yeah, so the next chapter, chapter <laughs> 79, The Prairie, Ishmael decides to attempt the physiognomy and phrenology of the sperm whale. Yes. 
to scan the lines of his face or feel the bumps on the head of this leviathan. This is a thing which no physiognomist or phrenologist has as yet undertaken. So, yeah, um, I, by the way, uh, I, I think that the distinction between physiognomy oh, and this. phrenology is, yeah, physiognomy is about studying the, f- the character in the face, and phrenology is about studying the character in the shape of the skull? Broadly speaking, yes, because phrenology is all about, look, the brain, the shape of the brain is shaped or shapes the shape of the skull, and therefore by feeling and looking at the various structures, so it's, it's the broad structures of the skull, like, you know, the, um... The jaw, the head, the bumps mm-hmm. on the head, on the uh, on the cranium, cranium, not head. There's been a lot of heads, um, but physiognomy has a lot more to do with like you know your nose is large, therefore your you know various things like that. The two of them are basically different approaches to the same thing, which is getting out calipers and being like, ah yes, this person shall be a criminal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's it- all calipers science. Yeah, it, something that I don't really know about and that you might know more than I do is, like, how reputable are physiognomy and phrenology as sciences at this time? Because That's a complicated question. Basically, this is like the 40s or 50s. This would be the 50s. Phrenology is popular, especially among, um, I mean, frankly, racists, among people who want to argue that there are meaningfully separate, different uh, scientific, like, races of man. Mm-hmm. Um that's always been a major element of phrenology and physiognomy, um, which is not not mainstream science, but it's a particular emphasis there. And there's a certain skepticism among established scientists to some extent of this, like, new new supposed science that claims to get a lot more information than people really feel you can get. It's not that they're not racist, it's that they're not, like of the opinion that you can figure out someone's going to be a criminal because of the shape of their skull. So there's a lot of skepticism there, but a number of sort of young and uh, often connected to uh, Southern American, that is to say slave-owning antebellum uh, interests, do get pretty invested in physiognomy and phrenology. Uh, One of the um, phrenologically or physiognomically uh, interested parties is uh, Darwin's awful cousin, whose name I can never remember, uh, um, but I should be able to, uh, because he's like one of the fathers of eugenics, and I'm sure it'll come to me after the... uh, after the podcast. Um, In any case, the point being that there's a bunch of interest in uh, eugenics, phrenology, physiognomy, um, all of these sort of ways of categorizing people, which is not fully integrated into the academy, but in terms of popular science is very widespread, much in the same way that mesmerism and uh, animal magnetism and um, a number of other sort of uh, popular, eventually either discredited or at the time disreputable sciences are like this. And, you know, it's a complicated question. It is not to say that scientists didn't buy into phrenology and such, and that it didn't acquire a strong sheen of scientificity, uh, which it continues to have to this day for many people, mostly racists. Um, but it was never like fully integrated, mostly because it was a new science at the time. Yeah. I'm not trying to say, oh yeah, the scientific ta- establishment never buys into terrible ideas. Louis Agassiz, for example, who was mentioned earlier, who's absolutely part of the scientific establishment and hugely influential in, say, uh, endowing a library at Harvard or or at least getting one named after him. I don't know if his fortune went towards it. Um, dude's important. He invented the Ice Age. He was also just a super huge racist. Um, yeah. Uh, part of the reason why I was curious about this is that Ishmael refers to uh, 
physiognomy and phrenology as these two semi-sciences. Yes, so, so it is precisely because they are kind of disreputable, maybe kind of new. Um, there's definitely a lot of argument around them. They're controversial is what they are. Mm -hmm. They are things that some people would find really convenient to be true, but they never seem to pan out the way that, like, geology does. Yes. Um, and also there's a bunch of pushback against them, often from, like, you know, quarters like, I think it's kind of weird that you are saying you know my inner soul by calipering my face, fellow white man. <laughs> From right. people who would be far more willing to say, oh yeah, there's like racial physiognomical differences. There's like differences in skull shape and brain size between races of humans. But when you start applying it to everyone, I start feeling weird about my individuality. Yeah, I, I imagine that phrenologists are like very unpleasant at parties. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, um, the, you know, there's the, the old joke about uh, how a psychologist at a party gets to experience everyone trying their best to act normal around them. Yes. Only here it's a phrenologist at a party and everyone's trying their best to look like they have an average shaped skull so you don't <laughs> whip out the calipers. God. Uh... The one guy with like a high forehead is like putting a hat on. Uh, and, uh... Also, that guy's a sperm whale. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, Ishmael recognizes that applying these semi-sciences to a sperm whale is kind of ridiculous. Uh, but he says, Therefore, though I am but ill-qualified for a pioneer in the application of these two semi-sciences to the whale, I will do my endeavor. I try all things. I achieve what I can. Same. <laughs> yeah. Same, Ishmael. <laughs> I feel you, buddy. So, um... Yeah, and he does, you know, point out that Lava... Lavater? Lavater. The, um, the Swiss uh, physiognomist applied his, um, like, theory to the faces of different species to argue, like, look, you can see the general character of the species in their relative, you know, shape. Um, quote, dwells in detail upon the modifications of expression discernible therein. So, there are... There are phrenologists and physiognomists trying to say, no, no, this applies to more than humans, um, you know, presumably in the hopes of catching some of the, uh, you know, the legitimacy that biology at that time enjoyed. Yes. Uh, so the first obstacle that Ishmael reaches in, <laughs> in trying yeah. to talk about the physiognomy and phrenology of the sperm whale is that sperm whales do not have noses. Sorry. He has no proper nose. <laughs> Um, which, uh, you know, that is a pretty central element of both of those quote-unquote sciences. The central and most conspicuous of the features. <laughs> uh, but he argues that, uh, a, a, a nose would have been superfluous on a creature as enormous and noble as the sperm whale. <laughs> See, now I'm just imagining a sperm whale with a giant human nose sticking out of the front, and it's <laughs> awful. Also, surely its nose would its blow... Anyways. Well, I mean, he, he, he does say that, like, yes, sperm whales have a blowhole. It's just that that is not, like, a an external appendage. Yeah, yeah. Also, um, he says that, uh, really, um, uh, the, you know, the, the, the nose is like the, um, uh, in landscape gardening, the spire, cupola, monument, or tower of some sort. You know, uh, you need the openwork belfry of the nose. Uh, dash the nose from Phidias's marble jove, and what a sorry remainder. Nonetheless, Leviathan doesn't care. Doesn't need a nose. Truly, despite that being requisite for a face, uh, whales do without. And in fact, maybe they profit from it in terms of dignity. Yeah, in fact, maybe a nose is just kind of like a ridiculous uh, addition and... Uh, it just suggests uh, that someone could, like, prank you by pulling on it. Uh, 
Um, so yeah, so he's he's making the bizarre argument that a a nose is necessary to human physiognomy and phrenology, but a whale far beyond such pitiful devices as a nose. Yes. Uh, and however, the sperm whale's forehead. Oh yes, is sublime. And you know, I can kind of understand here because, like, the idea of a kind of like broad forehead is something I think that was valued in both of those pseudosciences. Oh yeah, I mean, it's generally the case that even if you're not actively a phrenologist, people do tend to see like a high, clear forehead as like, I mean. It's like, oh, wow, God, I have a big brain behind that one. Like, it's an egghead to be in a negative sense. But there's a sense of, like, yes, this is, like, a, a high, clear, genius forehead. And, you know, the omnipresent bust of William Shakespeare that makes him look like he has, like, a little mountain there certainly adds to that socially. In fact, he references that in this paragraph. Yes, and uh, I think this in some ways may be, like, the origin of deciding to talk about the phrenology of the sperm whale, because it's like, yeah. if you want forehead... <laughs> <laughs> If that's your thing, if you just really need a great big forehead, which he argues is the, um, the mystical brow is as that great golden seal affixed by the German emperors to their decrees. It signifies God, done this day by my hand. Yeah. Uh, so basically, yeah, sperm whales have enormous, prominent foreheads. Yep. Uh, he also notes that uh, most animals don't have that much forehead. Even humans, you know, few are the foreheads which, like Shakespeare's or Melanchthon's, rise so high and descend so low that the eyes themselves seem clear, eternal, tideless mountain lakes. And above all above them in the forehead's wrinkles, you seem to track the antlered thoughts descending there to drink as the highland hunters track the snow prints of the deer. Which is just a really elaborate metaphor, and I really like it. The idea of, like, seeing thoughts, like, descending the forehead, but it's also extremely silly. Yes. Uh, and, uh, in fact, uh, he claims that the, you know, the, the sperm whale's forehead so <clears throat> magnifies, uh, this high and mighty godlike dignity, um, that gazing on it in that full front view, you feel the deity and the dread powers more forcibly than in beholding any other object in living nature. Um, I gotta so say... Part of that has to be because if you do see a whale coming full on and it's a living sperm whale, you're dead. Yes. Or at the very least, extremely screwed. Yes. Uh, in fact, and he does specify that because uh, he's saying, he's describing what you see when you see the forehead. Uh, you see no one point precisely. Not one distinct feature is revealed. Etc. Etc. Uh, nothing but that one broad firmament of a forehead pleated with riddles, dumbly lowering with the doom of boats and ships and men. So he, he is mentioning that if you're looking directly at a sperm whale's forehead, you are in its path. Yes. Uh, he also notes that in profile, you will plainly perceive that horizontal semi-crescentic depression in the forehead's middle, which in man is levators, or again, I can't pronounce that guy, but um, this one Swiss physiognomist's mark of genius. But how? Genius in the sperm whale? Has the sperm whale ever written a book, spoken a speech? No, his great genius is declared in his doing nothing particular to prove it. It is moreover declared in his param pyramidical silence. Yeah, I love that that use of pyramidical to mean like, you know, uh, as having the qualities of the Egyptian pyramids. Yeah. It's a lot. Uh, and he, he goes on, by the way, to claim that um, in, in, that in the exact same way that uh, the ancient Egyptians uh, regarded crocodiles as gods, which uh, there's a... 
he claims that it it was because they have no tongues, which is a um uh that's something Plutarch wrote. So oh, you know. you know um oh because lack of a tongue makes it similar to God. I I don't think that's why they considered Sobek a divine entity. I think it's because they were desperately in need of the Nile. Uh, yeah, I think there are all kinds of good reasons to yep. view crocodiles as like divine entities when they yeah as you say they are like the terrifying predators that rule the nile and the nile is totally central to egyptian life yep uh, yep and also fun fact since we're talking about sperm the nile is the uh the ejaculation of sobek sure in in certain versions of the egyptian uh you know mytho-historical view so uh imagine if ishmael had known that bit of like <laughs> mythic history yeah but, uh, but anyway, um, he does, you know, say uh, that the sperm whale has almost no tongue. So if, if the crocodile was worshipped for being tongueless, uh, clearly, if anyone were to, like, resurrect uh, pagan animal worship, they would have to also worship the sperm whale. Yep, yep. The, um, you know, uh, concept of, you know, bringing back to the now egotistical sky, the now unhaunted hills, the, you know, the superstitious ways of before. Surely the sperm whale will uh, be, you know, the equivalent of Jove, this ruling god. And I gotta say, um, I don't think pagan reconstructionism has uh, borne that out. Yeah, more's the pity. Like, uh, look, maybe you and I have to take up this torch. Uh, we are not making the Church of the Sperm Whale, Mark. <laughs> we are not making Whale Church. <laughs> I am opting out of this side project. <laughs> All right, we got a lot more podcasts to go. We'll see how. We'll see what happens. <laughs> what, um, are you going to wear me down and make me join your your whale religion? I'm just saying that the idea that, like, Moby Dick is divine is something you and I have talked about a lot. Yeah, but I'm all on board with stabbing it. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, <sighs> Anyways, um, that's a great setup for, yet again, just amazing final paragraph. This keeps happening. He just does not miss. Yeah, I want to read this Melville, one. not not Ishmael. Ishmael misses a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, he tries everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, Good tries, Ishmael. Uh, nice hustle. So the, the last paragraph here. Uh, Champollion, that's uh, the person who deciphered the Rosetta Stone, deciphered the wrinkled, wrinkled granite hieroglyphics. But there is no Champollion to decipher the Egypt of every man's and every being's face. Physiognomy, like every other human science, is but a passing fable. <laughs> if, then, Sir William Jones, who read in thirty languages, could not read the simplest peasant's face in its profounder and more subtle meanings, how may unlettered Ishmael hope to read the awful Chaldee of the sperm whale's brow? I but put that brow before you. Read it if you can. It's so good. And also, like, here's the thing. Ishmael is contemptuous of physiognomy as a semi-science and phrenology as well. But he also is contemptuous of complete sciences as similarly being unable to mantle the, you know, vast knowledge of the world. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this, oh, it's so good. I want to give also a few more citations in that last, uh, second of lessons. Look, which is, this chapter is full of citations. Uh, it's that um, Chaldi is, uh, he, he's referring to like an ancient language. Uh, 
specifically Aramaic. It's the um, Babylonian inscription language. Yeah, exactly. Um, this also shows up a lot in uh, the Torah, where the Chaldeans are the Babylonians, and specifically they are synonymized with astrologers and uh, prof and like people who try to not prophets, but people who try to determine the future uh, through you know sciences and arts, which is what is forbidden. Whereas prophecy, which is when God or you know uh, his messengers come down and tell you things, that's good. So. There's an element here also, I think, of conflation between the Chaldeans and modern sciences. Mm. Um, and the like the concept of, you know, the awful Chaldee of the sperm whale's brow is like the, you know, hidden astrological, uh, hidden in you know, indecipherable script of uh of ancient secrets, which man is not meant to know, perhaps, at least according to some divine mandate. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh that is the sperm whale's head. Yeah. Or I love when whales. things reference Chaldea. It's yeah. good. Yeah. Uh but yeah, read it if you can, dear listeners. I mean, obviously we do not have a whale to give you, uh, but you know I, I have repeatedly encouraged people throughout this podcast to go look at pictures of whales' heads. So that, if, that's true. If you can look at a picture of a sperm whale's head and divine any meaning there, please do share it with me. Yeah, no. We are very excited for whoever shall uh, decipher the Rosetta Stone of the uh, whale head. Also, um, uh, were there any other citations you oh, wanted yeah. to get to? Yeah, there was one other. This is I don't think this is quite as necessary just to like understand what he's saying, but the Sir William Jones, who read in 30 languages, that was a philologist, so uh, someone who studied languages. Um, and according to PowerMobyDick.com, he's the person who first proposed that the Indo-European languages were related. Um, so that is That's some... an important proposition yeah that's someone who is you know important to the like the history of ancient languages and the development of you know a, a unified theory of certain languages as well yeah yeah <sighs> so that's um that's chapter 79 the prairie which i think the prairie is a reference to his earlier reference to the sperm whale's head as having a forehead like a prairie yeah like he says that a couple chapters ago and then completely forgets to tell you in this chapter what he's referring to by the prairie (laughs) yes i think that's correct um (laughs) melville does not miss ishmael (laughs) (laughs) all right so moving on chapter 80 the nut uh you said it without immediately giggling oh yeah i mean again we've been over this lots of this book is about sperm this part is about the the head, the skull of the sperm whale. Yep, um, yep. So I I don't think he means it that way. Although it is not impossible. Like, I went and looked up the etymology here, and I couldn't find, you know, as often with slang terms, uh, we don't have the greatest etymological information. Uh, but it does seem like um, nut, meaning testicles, might date to the 19th century. Um, but, uh... Look, uh... Let's 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 stick to Hamlet, you know, bound in a nutshell and counting himself king of infinite space. Uh-huh. Um, uh huh. But so we have basically just covered the the unreadable physiognomy of the sperm whale, and now it's time for the phrenology, um, which is, uh, I mean, so if the sperm whale be physiognomically a sphinx, to the phrenologist, his brain seems that geometrical circle which it is impossible to square. Um, uh, which, so. Uh, well, I wanted to mention, by the way, that squaring the circle is a, an ancient geometry problem. Um, the idea is, is you're, you're supposed to figure out a way with uh, nothing more than, 
you know, the like axioms of Euclidean geometry. And basically the tools of that, which is the straight edge, the line, and the compass. Yes, uh, to draw a square that has precisely the same area as a given circle, which um, it is impossible to do that. Um, With Euclidean tools. Yes. Uh, however, um, that wasn't actually proven uh, by the time of this novel's publication. It's like... Squaring, it's an open problem. Squaring the, the circle was like a famously insoluble problem in that nobody had solved it, um, but no one had proven that it was definitely insoluble until 1882. Yeah, so a while after the book's publication. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. So, uh, so this is the this this problem is like the the problem that seems insoluble but perhaps has a solution that can be found. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyhow. Uh, so, uh, now we are talking about the actual skull, uh, and brain of the sperm whale, um, which as we've been talking about, um, is like a separate chamber from the, um, from the case and the junk. It's like, it's sloping back towards the back of the head and is like not really present in the large squarish bulbous forehead. Yes. Um, and the brain itself is, uh you know, compared at least to the size of the head, is relatively small. Um, Ishmael uh, says it, it is, the brain is found in a, in a cavity, seldom exceeding 10 inches in length and as many in depth, reposes the mere handful of this monster's brain. Um, also, it's like 20 feet deep into the whale. Yes. Uh, and so this, this essentially means uh, that if you were going to try to interpret the external shape of the sperm whale's head as reflecting either the shape of its skull or the shape of its brain, like, that, no. just, that makes no sense at all. You that just is simply can't. not true. It is plain, then, that phrenologically, the head of this leviathan, in the creature's living intact state, is an entire delusion. As for his true brain, you can then see no indications of it, nor feel any. The whale, like all things that are mighty, wears a false brow to the common world. And I gotta say, who do we know that's been wearing a false brow to the common world? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is a, a kind of allusion to Ahab and his his deceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, Ishmael also says that um, whale skulls are, like, at least proportionally look quite similar to human skulls. When um, seen from a very specific angle. Yes. Um, and uh, that, you know, if, if if it was, like, shrunk down and you put it among human skulls, you would uh, probably, you know, you could confuse it with human skulls. Yeah, if you saw it from the back, from sort of up. Like, he, he has this whole, like, the correct way to look at it to produce this resemblance. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, it's, you go around to the other side and you're like, huh, that's really, like, long and mandibular and not in any way similar to a human skull. But if you look at it from this one angle. <laughs> yes. Uh, and he also says that if you were to look at it in this way, uh, remarking the depressions on one part of its summit, in phrenological phrase, you would say, this man had no self-esteem and no veneration. Um, which veneration in phrenology means, like, sort of higher consciousness. Like, huh. Yeah. Like, uh, here, let me, I looked this up before, but I should look it up again so that I make sure I'm, uh describing it in precise i think this is like one of the main the idea of the organ of veneration is like one of the few mm -hmm. phrenological phrases i've heard before um uh, the higher aspirations of a subject the quest for higher values the quest beyond terrestrial existence uh so uh so like 
religious and kind of like um, aspirational and uh, metaphysical impulses. Yes, and uh, and Ishmael's interpretation of that, and by those negations, considered along with the affirmative fact of his prodigious bulk and power, you can best form to yourself the truest, though not the most exhilarating, conception of what the most exalted potency is. Uh, so he's basically saying here that the whale being something that is enormous and powerful, but that, if you believe phrenology, does not regard itself particularly importantly and has, like, no r- higher aspirations. That's what great power is. Just a hmm. thing that is powerful but not at all self-conscious or, like... Uh, Concerned. Yeah, like, hi- has no higher consciousness nor self-consciousness. Which mm-hmm. is, like... I You know, I think I think this uh, description that he's making of the the phrenological meaning of the whale's skull does accord with, like, the kind of character that he gives sperm whales. Broadly speaking, yeah. I do think that it's... It's complicated because, on the other hand... I mean, to some extent, I have to read this as a direct counter to Ahab, Mm -hmm. who has a broken body and a, you know, and human frailty, but his will is so great that his body and his soul run away from it sometimes. His veneration is not exactly venerating but it's incredibly powerful his self-esteem is immense yeah uh yeah like i think the question of like how much ishmael actually credits phrenology is very uh Mm -hmm. like complicated because I, i suppose what i meant is that he's using it as a figure for like the whale is a purely natural entity of incredible power but little um you know no sort of none of the the whirling mind of ahab Ahab, on the other hand, is this being of pure, like, burning intellect and ambition. Yes. And the two are going to collide quite often, actually. Yes. Uh, And then he also kind of goes on to say, like, well, okay, if you you aren't particularly convinced by these things I've been saying about whale skulls, how about another option? Have (laughs) you considered spines? Uh, Because he, he basically argues that vertebrae are, like, tiny skulls and therefore ought to also be considered phrenologically Um, yep and that uh do you mind if i read sure sure so he says it is a german conceit that the vertebrae are absolutely undeveloped skulls but the curious external resemblance i take it the germans were not the first men to perceive a foreign friend once pointed it out to me in the skeleton of a foe he had slain, and with the vertebrae of which he was inlaying, in a sort of basso relievo, the pe- beaked prow of his canoe. Uh, and it's like, damn, I wonder who, who might use the bones of a slain enemy. Mm, I don't think it is, though. You don't think it's Queequeg? I don't think it's specifically Queequeg, no, because he meets Queequeg. He does not meet Queequeg when Queequeg would own a canoe. Mm, that's a good point. So yeah, I guess he's talking about some other yeah, person. Who... This is definitely uh, Melville's, I think, own sort of reputation letting a little bleed through. Because Bepi- Melville had this reputation for someone who had been, you know, quote unquote, among the cannibals. That he yes. had gone to the, you know, uh, South Pacific met people there, you know, understood them. Some of his earlier books were writing about that in a more, like, travel document kind of way. And so um, I think that this is just sort of being like, oh, yes, I've met people like this. Yeah, no, you're probably right. Anyway, um, so so this sort of uh, grim example aside, um, he's basically saying, yeah, the, my, uh, my, my canoe-building foreign friend and the Germans, which I... No, no citation on powermobydick.com about the idea that 
Germans believed that vertebrae were undeveloped skulls. Uh, yeah, that um, that sounds like a German may have expressed this to Melville at one point, or yeah. to Ishmael, and he was just sort of like, yeah, this sounds like a, a German belief. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, um, Ishmael is here arguing that the, uh, the spine is just as important phrenologically as the skull. Which, you know what, I'll grant that. <laughs> yeah, just as important, yes. Exactly. <laughs> um, if you want to figure out someone's character, feeling their spine or feeling their head bumps are probably going to be equally effective. Yeah. Um, he also specifically uh, gets, I think, a little bit double entendre with a, for I believe that much of a man's character will be found betokened in his backbone. I would rather feel your spine than your skull, whoever you are. <laughs> Do you sure. see that? I, yeah, I guess I kind of hear hear what you're getting at here. Um, anyhow, uh, he 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 uses this to argue that the sperm whale is like phrenologically impressive because his like upper vertebrae are so huge. Yes, uh, a thin joist of a spine never yet upheld a full and noble soul. I rejoice in my spine, as in the firm, audacious staff of that flag which I fling half out to the world. And you know, then he applies this to sperm whales and how they've just got a giant. Uh, spinal cord inside a giant spine. Yeah. Um, so, there's that. Um, but, uh, and then, right, he makes one more suggestion, uh, which is that if you uh, accept that the spine is phrenologically relevant, then you've also got to look at the sperm whale's hump, uh, which, you know, he sees as reflecting, the being the bump that reflects the sperm whale's upper vertebrae, and, uh, from its relative situation, then, I should call this high hump the organ of firmness or indomitableness in the sperm whale. And that the great monster is indomitable, you will yet have reason to know. Even this chapter ends on something really cool. <laughs> yes. Even though he's literally just making shit up in a made-up <laughs> science. Like, yes. I don't, like, I'm not saying, you know, he has said that phrenology is but a fable. But he's also literally just pointing at a bump and saying, I think I'm going to decide, unlettered Ishmael, what that bump means. Also, unlettered Ishmael, come on. You have, we know you have a nice education. Yes, he is pretty lettered. You, but... you reference the Chaldee and, like, uh, various uh, natural philosophers by name in this, in that chapter. Come yeah. on. Yeah, but... I know. But, I mean, I think he's probably... He's not an expert. He's, he's not a phrenologist. This is true, but, you know... But also, you know, what kind of expertise in phrenology really existed. <laughs> yeah, but um, he is just sort of saying, look, the whale has this quality of character in an immense amount and has this big lump. By phrenological logic, eh, eh, eh? Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, again, as compelling as any phrenological <laughs> claim. Um so yeah, that's uh, that's all we have to say at this point about the head of the sperm whale. Um, <sighs> yep, lots of lots of head. Someone got stuck in it and uh, birthed from it. Um, it's full of uh, spermaceti, which is incredibly valuable. It's large and weirdly shaped. Uh, it got involved coins. Yeah. Um, and uh, we got a surprising amount of Ishmael's sort of vague sense of mathematics. Like there's a lot of geometry. Yeah, there from, was. From squaring the circle to uh, multiple proofs of Euclid to coins. Yeah, it's true. There's th These are very, like, and, and perhaps this is purposeful because we're talking about heads. There is just a lot of, like, 
uh, intellectual play in these chapters. Yes, and you know that's definitely something I think it's making Ishmael think of. You know, getting drowned in Plato's honey head. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, also this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. We are just like diving into oceans of like uh... head. Wow. Sorry, I wasn't thinking. <laughs> I was about to say that we were diving into oceans of obscure, like, allegory and shit, but... I just meant that we're ending up inside skulls a bunch. That is definitely true. Um, <sighs> we, we need uh, Queequeg to heroically rescue us from this podcast and from, like, sexual things we may inappropriately say. <laughs> uh, look, <laughs> I just wasn't thinking. We've been dealing a lot with skulls. I... Listen, it's fine. Honestly, I was wondering at what point on this podcast a head pun was going to be made, so I'm just kind of glad- I didn't even you... make one on purpose. <laughs> it was not on purpose. I understand that. <sighs> Peony is not impressed. He's no. sitting across the room just looking at us being like, why aren't you feeding me? Yeah, yeah, that cat cares absolutely nothing for this podcast. It's refreshing. <laughs> <sighs> well, uh, what tune is it we sing for, man? A dead whale or a stove boat?